If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke. We're getting back to Luke. All right, we've taken six weeks off, seven weeks off, I guess, uh, to do this beautiful life series, which was beautiful, by the way. Uh, and I think Scott showed you last week that a lot of people's lives have been impacted uh, by this. And so it's really been good. We're, we're going to do that periodically where we'll just take a break and do a theme. But uh, ordinarily, our modus operandi is to just go into the Bible and go verse by verse. So we're looking at the temptation narratives. I left off about seven weeks ago with the temptation narratives of Luke chapter 4, and I want to get back to that. I want to entitle this message, Resisting the Devil. And it's about spiritual warfare. And that's why I'm wearing this shirt. And I'm not, I'm not going to read the whole temptation narrative Uh, We've read it twice before. I'll just read the beginning and the end, and then I want to throw in a couple other verses as well. So here's what it says in Luke chapter 4. This is the TNIV version. It says, Jesus, who was full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and then was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. And then the devil tries to get him to turn stone into bread and tries to get him to prove that he's Messiah by throwing himself off the temple and then tries to get him to get all the political power in the world. Jesus declines all offers, and then it says this, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Two other verses I want us to look at. The first is from 1 Peter, which says, Believer, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, there is an enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There is a cosmic being out there who wants to devour you. So don't fall asleep. Stay alert. And that says this in James chapter 4. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. And those are really two sides of the same coin. You resist the devil by submitting to God. Uh, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee. Not he might, kind of, sort of, maybe. No, he will flee. Lord, Holy Spirit, anoint this message. Give it your power, your authority to impact us, change us, wake us up, and get us in the battle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, we saw several weeks ago as we looked at the temptation narratives for the first time that Luke is here presenting Jesus as the new Adam, the new founder of a new human race. That's what uh, this Christianity thing is all about. Jesus came to reverse what the old Adam did and to start a new humanity. Uh, Unlike the first Adam, the second Adam didn't fall into the temptation uh, that was thrown his way. And so Luke is presenting Jesus as the new Adam. We also saw several weeks ago that Uh, The thing that Satan tempts Jesus with and the thing that he usually tempts us with is not obviously evil stuff. Rather, the devil, being crafty, uh, presents Jesus with things that are arguably good things. Jesus, you could feed the world by changing stone into bread. Jesus, you could prove to the world that you're the Messiah by throwing yourself off of the temple. Jesus, uh, you could run the world rightly and get all these incompetent leaders out by just getting all the political power of the world. But Jesus doesn't do those things. Even though you can make the case that those would be good things to do because you can improve the world and alleviate suffering, Jesus doesn't go there because it wasn't the Father's will for him to go there. Even though practically you might make a case that he should have gone there, Uh, Sometimes being in the kingdom, in fact, usually being in the kingdom means you choose faithfulness over practicality. Those things could have resulted in some immediate good benefit to the world, but they would not have put on display the outrageous love of, of God to the world, the way that was put on display by Jesus dying on the cross. So Jesus 
wins the world by going to the cross rather than by using his power uh, to these immediate practically good effects. I now want to look at another aspect of these temptation narratives, and that's uh, the, the, more specifically uh, dealing with the craftiness, the demonic intelligence of the enemy, of the devil. And the first thing I need to do is to make sure we're all on the same page, believing that this devil is real and that demons are real. I saw a, uh, a poll. I'm always kind of following the poll, polls uh, of what Americans believe. And this particular poll showed that almost 94% of all Americans believe in God in some way, shape, or form. They, they believe in God. But just over 50% uh, believe in a real devil. They thought he was maybe a symbol of evil or a mythological figure or whatever. But they didn't believe that, that the devil or demons really exist. In fact, one out of ten uh, people who identified themselves as born-again Christians or evangelicals, one out of ten thought the devil was symbolic, that he wasn't uh, real. And I'm not sure why it is that people have an easier time believing in God than in believing in the devil. Uh, they're both invisible. Uh, why is it harder to believe in one than the other? In fact, I would have a harder time believing in God if I didn't believe in the devil. Because how else do you explain this world being so screwed up? When you look at the world, uh, you see a lot of great stuff. You see the beauty. You see the grandness of creation. You see the complexity of creation, the complexity of the brain and the human eye and, 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 and all of this. And you know there's got to be a good, uh, all-powerful intelligence behind creation. But you look at the world and you also see a lot of crusty, evil, gross stuff. Uh, involved in the very nature of the world with diseases and, and, and viruses and cancer and AIDS and mudslides and tsunamis and earthquakes. And, and those two things aren't easily reconciled. It seems to me that in the same way that all the good and beautiful and, and intelligent stuff points to a good and intelligent God, so also all the evil stuff suggests that there is a cosmic evil being who's working at cross purposes with God. But a lot of people don't see it that way. They, they don't think it's a, it's a real thing. The devil and demons are, are actual, real, existing beings. It's important that we believe this, not just with our head, but in our heart. Let me give you very quickly four good reasons for concluding that the devil and demons are real. The first one is what I just gave you. Uh, the scope of evil. How do you explain the scope of evil unless you believe that there are cosmic agents that have the power to bring about some evil in creation? A lot of the evil in the world you can't explain just by appealing to human free will. Uh, the evil that's involved in nature, the suffering that's involved in nature, the, the, very, the very fabric of nature seems to have gone awry, and that is uh, uh, only easily explained by appealing to cosmic forces like the devil, who, has, who have the power to, to some degree, corrupt uh, the workings of nature. A second argument would be not the scope of evil, but the depth of evil. When you look at things like what happened in Rwanda 10 years ago, or in Nazi Germany, there is, I suggest to you, a depth of evil that goes beyond natural human capacities. In fact, a lot of people who are involved in events like Rwanda 10 years ago, the genocide massacre, or were involved in Nazi Germany, testify to this. Uh, several people who were working in the UN while the uh, genocide in Rwanda go, uh, went on talk about how they confronted the devil some of them don't even believe in God, but they talked about how they confronted the devil in this massacre. One UN worker talked about how he, as he was uh, uh, speaking to some of these Tuts, uh, uh, the, the Tutsis after they had massacred a village, he said, I saw the devil in their eyes. 
fact, uh, after the service, after the first service, uh, a lady came up who actually was, was nine years old and was part of that massacre. And uh, she testified that that was exactly right. There was this evil that she, she sensed, and she wasn't a Christian at the time, but, but, but you just sensed this evil descending on this nation, resulting in his bloodshed. You can't explain the depth of evil unless you believe in a real devil and that the devil and demons are real. The third argument is, uh, I could express this way. How do you explain dem demonic phenomenon unless you believe that the devil and demons are real? What I mean by that is this. There are numerous, in fact, massive volumes of accounts, uh, eyewitness accounts of people testifying of supernatural things happening uh, when exorcisms or deliverances are taking place. In fact, I myself have witnessed some of this. About 18 years ago, I was dealing with the first case, or one of the first cases I had, of actually praying for a person who was manifesting uh, demons. And uh, in the course of praying for this young lady, there's a number of us praying for her, First of all, she was like hitting herself and scratching herself. There's this, this self-destructive behavior, which you find in the Bible and you also find all over the place in people who write about uh, these things. And I was holding one of her arms to keep her from doing that. And yet I was having trouble holding one of her arms. There was a supernatural strength that this young lady would have at times where she was just like manhandling us which you find in the Bible, Acts chapter 19, that sometimes people who are demonized have this supernatural strength. And then at one point, this, this young lady grabbed me and pulled me nose to nose with her. And she was growling, talking some cursing stuff, you know, in this growling voice, and uh, was looking at me nose to nose and staring at me. And then one of her eyes, her left eye, rolled counterclockwise three times. It just went bloop, 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 like that. The other eye stared straight at me, and then she threw me, and I freaked out. <laughs> uh, but you, I was immature of the Lord. Now, I, now I'd handle it totally different. But back then, it was, it was my first encounter. Cut me a break. It was like, I, I, I walked around the room going like this. I was like, I, did that just happen? But see, you're going to have a hard time convincing me that demons aren't real. You try doing that. If someone in this room can roll one of their eyes and not the other, I'll be impressed. I, if you look at the literature, Paul, Eddie, and I uh, have been uh, collecting this data for about 15, 16 years in preparation for a book we're going to someday uh, write on this topic. And we've just looked at, throughout history, in all these different cultures, there are these credible, plausible eyewitness accounts of supernatural stuff happening. In fact, some of the stuff makes what I just told you look minimal. I mean, it's, you know, people levitate. Uh, objects fly across the room and, and things of that sort. That sort of thing is only explainable if you agree that the devil and demons are, are real. They're not just symbols of evil. They're, they're real. In fact, one of the things that's going on today, or these days, is that a lot of anthropologists and ethnographers and sociologists in academic circles, secular anthropologists and sociologists and ethnographers, are beginning to testify to some of these things. There has been, uh, you know, an academic circle, sort of a taboo about uh, these folks admitting that they've actually witnessed these things because these things aren't supposed to happen. Not if you hold to the naturalistic Western worldview. But more and more people are coming, as it were, out of the closet. And they're saying, they're giving reports about what has happened on the field. And they've witnessed some of this stuff. And some of it is absolutely mind-boggling. But it's only explainable if, in fact, you agree that the devil and demons are real. The fourth argument is by far and away the best argument, and it's simply this. Jesus believed that the devil and demons were real, and I've got every reason to believe that Jesus was right. 
I've got every reason a person could have for holding a belief that Jesus is the Son of God. The, the reliability of the Gospels, the historical evidence, the resurrection. I, I've got every reason to believe that he was the Son of God. And he believed that the devil and demons are real. And uh, if he's the Son of God, I'm thinking it's probably unlikely that his theology is off very much. And so I'm going to agree with him. So the bottom line is this. Uh, we've got good reasons to accept that though our Western naturalistic worldview tends to uh, suggest these things are not real, in fact, they are real. We're not the only ones, only intelligent beings in the cosmos. The cosmos is populated, populated by spiritual agents. Some of them are good, but some of them are evil. In fact, there's a war that is going on. And this is why this is important. It's so important that we believe not just with our head, but as a conviction in our heart that, in fact, the devil and demons are real and that there is a war that's going on. We are, in America especially, systematically conditioned, socially conditioned, to see our life as being sort of a, a vacation resort. We're conditioned to, to believe that uh, what we can see and what we can touch and what we can taste and what we can feel, that is real and nothing else really is. And we may theoretically, hypothetically believe that there's angels and demons, but, but, but we don't live our life uh, under the impact of that belief. We're so systematically conditioned in, in America, especially, to hold to values which which cause us to live our life as though we're on vacation, where we look out for number one, and the goal of life is to, to acquire as many toys as possible and live as convenient as possible and, and, and avoid as much pain as possible and as much inconvenience as possible, and, and to just basically do the American dream. We live life as though we were on vacation, where it's appropriate to do those sorts of things. And if that's your basic worldview, then if you believe in, in, in Christ and hold to Christianity— uh, you transform it into sort of a vacation resort religion. And a vacation resort religion is basically there to enhance your vacation. It's there to make you feel even a little better about yourself and, and make your life a little bit more comfortable and, and to justify your extravagant lifestyle. And it's there to, to just be kind of cute and quaint and sweeten up your life. It's there to be the ultimate seasoning of your life. It's the kind of Christianity that is as a culture celebrated in America on, on, on Christmas time where you have the cute, quaint Jesus who's there basically to teach us how to be nice to one another, and that's about as far as it goes. That's a vacation resort religion. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that is not the real gospel, and that worldview is not the accurate worldview, not if you're thinking about things from a biblical perspective. What's real is that we're not on, va on vacation here. We're in war. There's a war that's going on all around us this very minute. When it comes to your worldview... Don't think Disney World, think Baghdad. We're in the mirror, middle of a spiritual Baghdad right now, and there are bombs and there are bullets going, on, going off all around us. You can't see them because it's a spiritual war, but they're no less real because of that fact. The reality is that we're in the middle of war, and Jesus Christ calls us to enlist in this war. This is why it's so important that we hold this view not just as a theoretical belief, but that it's a, as a belief that, 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 that is a conviction of our heart that impacts our behavior. Christ is calling us to enlist in the war. In fact, to follow Jesus is to sign up for military duty. That's what it means. <clears throat> to, to follow Jesus and surrender your life to him is to sign up to advance the kingdom that he came to advance. When you enlist in an army, it changes everything. At least it should change everything. If somebody here decides they want to go enlist in the U.S. Army or some other earthly army, 
you've got to say goodbye to your civilian life. It's gone. The day before you enlist, you can wear your hair any way you want. But the day you enlist, now you've got to wear your hair the way the captain wants you to wear your hair. And the day before you enlist, you can go wherever you want, buy whatever you want, live whatever lifestyle you want, get whatever job you want, have whatever relationship that you want. But the, but the moment you enlist, now you say goodbye to your civilian duties, and now your job is to please your commanding officer. Uh, to follow a captain, to enlist in an army, to, to engage in battle, means you say goodbye to civilian life. So also, kingdom person, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and surrendered your life to Christ, you signed up for battle. Here's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. He says, The good soldier doesn't get involved in civilian affairs, but is always seeking to please his enlisting officer. You've got one job, and that's to please your enlisting officer. See, civilians who aren't following Jesus, it's normal for them to live life as though they're on vacation. The only question that they ask is, do I want it and can I afford it? And that settles the matter. But you've enlisted in the battle. You're following a commanding officer. So you've got to ask a different set of questions. Your question is not, do I want it and can I afford it? Your question is, does my captain want me to have it? Where does my captain want me to work? Where does my captain want me to live? How does my captain want me to live? What behavior does my captain want me to be involved in? What behavior does my captain not want me to be involved in? How does my captain want me to steward my resources and my time and my talents? It's all about pleasing your, your enlisting officer. There's a war going on, and, and, and the Lord is calling us to sign up, to enlist, to get on the front lines, but that means we've got to say goodbye to civilian life. Uh, it means we've got to swim upstream in a culture that's systematically conditioning us to live life as though we're on a vacation resort. Now, the nature of this war is very different than the nature of earthly wars and earthly battles. It's entirely different. We're not out to advance our national interests. This battle is about advancing the interest of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're not here as kingdom people to advance or protect the American democratic capitalistic way of life. We're here to advance the kingdom way of life, the Jesus-looking way of life, the love-looking way of life, the peace-looking way of life. And our battle is not over some plot of land. Our battle is to restore the entire earth back to its rightful owner, who is the creator, uh, God and Father of Jesus Christ. And our battle is not to advance uh, some particular form of government. Rather, our battle is to advance God's government where he's reigning, he's king, and Jesus Christ is Lord. And our weapons and our enemies are very different from battles and armies in this world. Our weapons are not bombs and bullets, and our enemies are not people. Rather, our weapon is most of all the, the love of Jesus Christ, which means we don't have any earthly enemies, hence my shirt. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but is against rulers and authorities and powers of, uh, in, of this dark world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, we, we don't advance in this warfare by killing our enemies. We advance this warfare by loving our enemies, as Jesus commands, by blessing our enemies, by serving our enemies, by giving them food when they're hungry, as Paul says in Romans 12, and giving them something to drink when they're thirsty. We, we advance by serving all people, including our enemies. And so this battle is not about advancing in the name of uh, ugly violence, but rather we advance by just putting on display the beauty of love, the beauty of God's peace, and the beauty of God's truth and forgiveness. So the question I want us to be asking right now is this. Are you enlisted in the battle? Are you signed up in the military? Is your mindset a military mindset? Do you, do you, do you see the world this way? Is the warfare real to you? Or, or have you fallen asleep? 
Are you alert and sober-minded as a good soldier, always asking the question, living in the question, what does my captain want me to do with what he's given me? Or have you been deluded by the American culture and, and have kind of uh, fallen asleep and flowing in the current of, of the vacation resort mindset that we're a part of? There are some here, I believe, that God is calling to enlist. Maybe you once were enlisted, but you've kind of gone AWOL, and the Lord is saying, I need you back. I need you back. See, things really hang in the balance on how we live. Things really hang in the balance on whether or not we step up to the plate and, and, and perform the duty that God calls us. Things really hang in the balance on how we see the world and how we live and the decisions we make and the things we own and, and, and the way we steward our resources. Are you living in a warfare mindset? Are you enlisted in the battle? That's the reality of the war I'm talking about. Let me say a word more about the nature of the war. We're involved in spiritual warfare. Now, a lot of people, when you think of, of spiritual warfare, immediately you, you, your mind goes to Linda Blair or something, you know, the exorcist. And, and you're thinking spiritual warfare is about some, somebody levitating three feet off the bed and spitting green pea, pea soup on a priest and saying, your mother, or something like that. Uh, you, you're thinking of haunted houses and Omen and Damien, and, and that's your idea of spiritual warfare. And so you, when you hear that I'm talking about spiritual warfare, you think I'm, I'm talking just about that. Now, some of that is real, as I just said a little bit earlier. That stuff does happen. Uh, that is one element of spiritual warfare, confronting demons, delivering people from demonic strongholds. And sometimes there's supernatural manifestations. I've seen some of that. Now, having said that, let me say this. There's a lot that goes on in the name of quote-unquote spiritual warfare that is just flaky. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff out there. I've studied a lot of this, and I'm telling you, I've been to seminars that are just bizarro, that go way beyond anything that's found in the Bible. Uh, they, they have a kind of a magical Gnostic approach to these issues where they think they have some kind of secret knowledge and you have to find out their name, rank, and serial number of every demon and who's in command and you use this magical formula for this kind of demon and that magical formula for another kind of demon. And there's nothing in the Bible about that. And some of these organizations end up wounding people as they claim to have a knowledge that they don't have and they end up blaming people for certain things and they can really screw you up. So when it comes to deliverance ministry, you got to be careful. you got to be very balanced. And by balanced, I mean you got to be very biblical. Stay within the parameters of the Bible. Yes, it's real, but, but, but some of what goes under the name of spiritual warfare is just flaky. Now at the same time, I want to say this. Some people have the opposite problem. You've seen the flakiness. Maybe you've been wounded by the flakiness, and so you've thrown the baby out with the bathwater, and you think it's all just a bunch of hocus-pocus. And I'm here to tell you that while a lot of that deliverance stuff is flaky and hocus-pocus, it's not all that way, and there really is that level of, of, of spiritual warfare. And we need to have a balanced approach to this. Realize that it's real, but have a very biblically grounded approach as we deal with this stuff. And having said all of that, I want to say one more thing. Well, that is real. The, the power encounter spiritual warfare stuff is real, and it goes on. And we need to be aware of that and be willing to engage in that when, it, when it's appropriate. While that happens, that is not the main kind of warfare most of us are engaged in on a day-by-day -day basis. And it's important that we see this. If you think of spiritual warfare as just about the kind of power encounter deliverance ministry stuff— then you think that if you're not dealing with a Linda Blair kind of case, that you're not involved in spiritual warfare. But the reality is, is that you're involved in warfare every day of your life. That's why I want to broaden our understanding of warfare. Uh, there's a difference between 
The way we deal with demons when they oppress people and the way we deal with warfare at large on a day-by-day basis. And to get at this distinction, I want to draw our attention to something that I bet most people here haven't seen before, and that's this. There is a different difference in the way that Jesus deals with Satan on the one hand and the way he deals with demons on another. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. When Jesus deals with demons, he just confronts them. It's a power encounter. There's no intelligent interaction. There's no conversation. There's only one episode where Jesus at all engages in conversation with, with, with demonic forces, and it's very short and to the point, and then comes the power encounter. And, and when demons leave people, there, there's oftentimes, uh, you find this both in the Bible and you find it in, uh, throughout history and cultures all around the world, that there's often shrieking and there's you know, supernatural manifestations and foaming at the mouth and, and other things like that. When Jesus deals with Satan, however, as he's doing in Luke chapter 4 that we're dealing with right now, it doesn't look at all like that. Satan is much more subtle, much more crafty, much more clever. Satan can quote scripture out of context and to make a wrong point, but he knows how to quote scripture. He knows how to make bad stuff look good. He's the master of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning. And Jesus, when, he, when, when he's confronting Satan, he doesn't use a power encounter approach. He outwits him. He uses scripture against him. He stands in the truth of who he is and what God's called him to do. There's a very different kind of, of, of battle that's going on. When demons afflict people, they often get involved in self-destructive behavior and sinful behavior or sometimes in destruction of others or property or whatnot. But it's kind of obvious. They're just acting out. When Satan possesses someone, however, it's not obvious. In fact, when Satan possesses somebody, they just become more evil. Uh, demons uh, 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 land on a, per- a particular vulnerable area of a person's life, but Satan goes after their character and tempts them to become a different kind of person. That's why it's possible for Christians to be afflicted by demonic strongholds. There's an area of your life that's just under the power of, 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 of evil. But it's, it's impossible for Christians to be possessed by Satan because that implies that your character, the core of your being, is owned by Satan and that you are an evil person. Uh, run-of-the-mill sinners can be you know, played by demons, but people who are possessed by Satan look like Judas or perhaps Stalin or perhaps Hitler. There's a very different kind of encounter, a very different kind of warfare that's going on. Demons try to overpower somebody in an area of their life, but Satan uses craftiness to lure a person into a different way of, of, of living, tempts them to go against their, their identity and calling. I can get at the difference this way. Satan seven times is called Beelzebul in, in the Gospels. The word Beelzebul means Lord of the Flies. Really an interesting title. And I imagine that the novel Lord of the Flies comes from this. But here demons are likened to flies and Satan is their Lord. Demons are sort of these low-intelligence demonic grunts. They're, they're, they're sort of the, 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 the bottom of the pecking order of the demonic kingdom. Uh, there's nothing that indicates that they're very smart or very intelligent. They just follow orders. They fear for their life. Uh, they're, they're, they're more like demonic viruses that plague us. But Satan is the intelligence behind the whole operation. Satan, in contrast to demons, Satan is a prowling lion. He's sneaky. He's crafty. He's strategic. Saw a nature channel some time ago, and it had a, a lion that was stalking these these uh, uh, antelope. And one of the antelopes was kind of by its side, uh, by itself, and so it was kind of vulnerable. And this lion, 
I, I didn't realize lions were this smart and this patient. But this thing, it, it, it strategically got in an area, you know, where, where it could most have a clear access to this antelope. And it was very slow and patient. And if the antelope ever looked its way, it just stopped. And it could freeze for the longest time. And its eyes were just above the bush. So you could hardly even recognize it was there. And then, then when the antelope wasn't looking, it, it went, you know, a little closer, a little closer. And finally, when it got to the right moment, it just leaped out and pounced on it. But what impressed me was how patient it was getting up to that point. There's a cosmic being out there who's got cosmic beings under it who's prowling, seeking whom he may devour. Who can I eat next? There's an intelligent craftiness, a demonic craftiness that we need to be aware of. That's why the Bible says, be awake, stay awake, don't fall asleep. Know that there's a cosmic force out to get you. Don't live in fear of that. No, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But at the same time, be aware of it. A passage that really captures well the craftiness of the devil is 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Here's what Paul says as he's talking to the Corinthians. Really interesting passage. Paul says, Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive... I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware, or at least we should not be unaware, of his schemes. The word schemes there is the word noema, which means a plan or a strategy. Now here's the background of this passage. There's a brother who apparently had fallen into sin and caused some offense. He now wants to be restored. Some of the Corinthians are a little too haughty, and they don't think they should forgive this guy. And Paul is saying, no, we need to forgive this guy. What's at stake here is that if they don't forgive the guy, Paul's worried that the guy is going to be destroyed because of shame, and perhaps that the congregation would be divided because some think that he, he should be restored and some think he shouldn't be restored. And what Paul says to them uh, about this issue is this. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Do you see what's going on here? There's a scheme, a noema at work here, a strategy, a plan on the part of the enemy. And he's trying to use it to destroy this guy and to divide this church. Wake up, Corinthians. Look what's going on. That self-righteous urge that some of you have to not forgive this person because you think that you're holier than him, that's not just your emotion. There's a strategy behind it. Wake up to that. Understand this emotion as being in the context of spiritual war, which is why Paul says you're being tested. This is a test. Will you give in to Satan's temptation and judge this brother and not restore him, or will you pass the test? Which means you'll submit to God, which means you'll resist the devil, which means you'll forgive this brother. The solution to the temptation is to take a stand and resist the devil and submit to God. It is the same way with us. We are at war. C.S. Lewis said that every square inch of the cosmos at every moment is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan or the other way around. Don't be outwitted. There's a war that's going on. There's a prowling lion who's out to destroy you and he's subtle and he's crafty and he's utterly destructive. When you fall into temptation, maybe it's the temptation to stay angry rather than letting go of that anger. A temptation not to forgive when you know that the right thing is to forgive. When you have that temptation, see it in the context of spiritual warfare. That feeling, that, that, that deceptive feeling that you have that you're actually being empowered by not forgiving somebody. We feel like this. Like somehow we feel like we're, we're, we're hurting them by not forgiving them. We feel empowered. 
We feel like we, we have the upper edge of things. We, we're feeling righteous. That feeling of self-righteousness is not just about you. There's a demonic noema behind it. There's a strategy behind it. And the goal is to sever your relationship from the person you're angry with and ultimately to destroy you. Realize that there's always more going on when we have these negative emotions, the bitterness, the, 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 the anger, the unforgiveness, the hatred. When we have these emotions, there's another dimension to them. There is a, a lion out there who's encouraging that stuff. Now, having said that, let me say this. I don't want to hear anybody say the devil made me do it. I can't help it the devil made me do it. That's nonsense. You're the one who's responsible for your thoughts and for your emotions. You're the one doing it. But having said that, you also got to know that there's a, 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 a cosmic force out there who's got a noema against you, a plan against you, and will certainly give energy to that. And realize that that's going on. John Eldridge, in his great book, Waking the Dead, great book on warfare, he talks about a small group at one point, how a small group is a really good community, and, and they worship together and do good stuff together. But at some point, they began to, for whatever reasons, begin to bicker with one another and fight one another and misunderstand one another, and communication became difficult, and they began to judge one another and, and hold, hold, hold animosity towards one another. You ever have that happen to your family or a small group or whatever? And the group was really becoming undone until they finally woke up to the reality that they were being played. They were being played. They were pawns in a noema, pawns in a strategy that the enemy was using against one another. This is what happens. If we forget he's the enemy, we start making enemies out of one another. But I'm here to tell us that we've got a common enemy, and it's not the other person. Uh, it's this, this, this prowling lion who's seeking to de de devour us. Stay in the warfare context. See the warfare dimension of what's going on. When you're tempted with that lust, there's a pull, perhaps, to go back to the old bondage that you have already gotten out of. There's that voice that's calling you saying, wouldn't it be nice just to jump on the internet and just look at a couple of pictures, just a couple. When you have that, that, that voice that's there, know that that's not just about you and there's more at stake than you could possibly realize. There's a war going on and there's an enemy who's got a noema against you, which is why you need to see it as warfare and take authority over it. When you have that temptation to fall into greed, you're coveting what somebody else has, or you're jealous over someone else's marriage, or, or you're envying someone else's car or possessions or life, whatever. When you have that temptation to fall into greed, know that that's not just about you, and it's not just an emotion. There's an enemy who's playing you. When you have that, that temptation to fall back into old patterns of thought, to seeing yourself as a victim or see yourself as, as, as addicted or whatever it is, Know that there's an enemy who's playing you, who's got a strategy against you. When you have that temptation to escape from your problems by pouring yourself into a night of alcohol or drugs or sex or what have you, know that that's not just about your emotions. There's another dimension to this, a warfare dimension to this. An enemy who wants to play you, who ultimately wants to destroy you, and by using you, perhaps destroy others. See your temptation as being in a warfare, const a, a, a warfare context, and know that there's an enemy who wants to to play you. Don't be his pawn. Now, what do you do when you're in that situation? And by the way, we're all in that situation from one time to another. Let me close by saying four quick things. Number one, the first thing is to, is to be aware. Remember to spin this as a warfare thing. We can't ever say the devil made me do it, but we also got to realize that there's demonic energy to much to everything in our life that's not of God, there's a demonic energy there. So be aware. Be aware of the warfare. Be, remember, be sober-minded. Be alert that there's a, a prowling lion who's seeking to devour you. Uh, expect that to happen. Look, at, if, if you're not being tempted, if you've gone a long time without being tempted, say, I never get tempted. I, now I'm worried about you. 
if, if Jesus, who was sinless, was tempted, how do you think you're not going to be tempted? See, if, you're not, if, if you don't experience temptation, the chances are that you've forgotten that there's a war going on and you're just seeing your emotions as your emotions. You bought the secular lie that your emotions are just your emotions and your thoughts are just your thoughts. You've forgotten there's a warfare dimension to this. And if you're not being tempted, chances are that it's because you're, you, you give into it so naturally that you're not even aware that there's a struggle. You see, if you're flowing with a current, if you're a popsicle stick flowing with a current, you don't notice how strong the current is. It's only when you plant yourself and take a stand that now the force of the current comes up against you. We're, we're amidst a cultural current with spiritual power behind it to get us to just live a vacation resort and give in to temptation or whatever. But when you take a stand for God, boom, it's going to come at you. How can it be any other way? If you sign up for war, you're going to take shots. Be aware of that. Uh, stay, remain awake. Uh, that's not unusual. And it's not sin to fall into, into temptation either. Jesus was tempted and yet he didn't sin. Expect it. It's a normal part of life. The question is, how are you going to handle it? Which leads to my second point. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee. It's that simple. You resist. This is the point where you have a decision to make. Are you going to give into it or are you not going to give into it? Are you going to linger? Are you going to dwell? Are you going to gaze? Or are you going to say no to it? It's a very important point uh, in our life. Resisting means you make the decision, whatever you feel, whatever the cost, whatever the pain, you say no to it. You say no to it. You don't go involved in the rationalizations, talking yourself into it. You just say no. And you do whatever you take to put a distance between you and that which you're being tempted with. If you can't handle the internet uh, and, and, and keep your mind pure, then get rid of the internet. And if you have to, smash the stupid computer. It's not worth it. You just take a stand. If you can't handle having a beer and stopping at that, if you always, as soon as you pick up a beer, you end up drunk, then don't have the first beer. You resist by saying no at the point that it's hitting you. Let me tell you this, and this is worth the price of admission just with this. <laughs> saying no at the start is a whole lot easier than saying no 10 minutes down the road or 10 years down the road. The more you give in, this is the enemy, the more, the more you let that lion paw you around, the harder it is to ever get out from under his paws. At the beginning, say no, resist the devil, and he will flee. And then number three, turn your mind towards truth. This is so important because the enemy always uses lies against us. Usually not obvious lies. Uh, Half-truths is the way he operates. He, things that, 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 that are at least convincing enough so we can rationalize our way into it. And so we need to turn our mind towards truth to confront the lie. Uh, you know, all the temptations that Jesus was involved in were in one way or another predicated upon a lie. A lie about what kind of Messiah he was supposed to be. A lie about what he came to do. A lie about his identity. He uses half-truths. He'll even use Scripture against us. You can take the Bible and make it mean anything you want if you pull it out of context. And the devil knows the Bible probably better than all of us. And he can twist that thing and turn that thing. This is where you need to know the truth. Jesus said, if you know the truth, you shall be set free. Conversely, if you don't know the truth, you're going to stay in bondage. Know the truth. When you're tempted, you say no, and then immediately turn your mind to the truth. When you're tempted to be involved in anger and unforgiveness... You say no to that thought, and now turn your mind to what is true. And what is true is this. You've been forgiven an infinite debt. 
How can you possibly hold anyone else uh, to a debt? What's true is that the Spirit of God is within you. What's true is that the Spirit of forgiveness is within you. What's true is that the love of Jesus Christ flows in you and through you. What's, What's true is that you are, as a child of God, empowered to forgive even your worst enemy. Turn your mind to that. Say the truth. Think the truth. See the truth. Run a virtual reality of what you look like when you're walking in this reckless forgiveness that looks like Jesus Christ forgiving you. When you're tempted with lust, and, and, and you want to return back to that internet porn. When that, when that temptation's there, you resist it. You do what you have to, to to put a distance. And now turn your mind towards what is true. And what is true is that sex is a beautiful and wonderful thing when it's done in the right context. And what is true is that you are, you are a holy, blameless, spotless child of God, bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What's true is that you are a king's kid and you got no business uh, uh, wallowing around in this pig's mire, this smut. This is way beneath you. This is, ju- this is juvenile. You, you, you're an adult in Jesus Christ and, and you've got righteous DNA running through you. See that. Think that. Speak that. Lock yourself in that and, 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 and resist the lie and it flees. So it is when you're falling into a, uh, the, the, the temptation to be involved in hate or gossip or judgment or escape. Know who you are in Christ. Stand who you are in Christ. Take the scripture and memorize it and, and, and run movies of it. When the enemy comes at you with half-truths about who you used to be and what you used to do and things that were done to you, same thing. Turn your mind to the truth when he comes and says, reminds you of how you've failed in the past and how you are weak, you resist the thought, you say no to the thought, and you turn your mind to the truth. No, you know, that's who I used to be, but I'm not that any longer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I was weak. Oh, yeah, I used to fall all the time, but you know what? I'm more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You say that. You think that. You speak that. You get that in your mind. Run a virtual reality movie of that. And when the enemy comes at you and says, oh, you're a victim. You've always been a b- victim. When you're tempted to blame the world for all your problems and live in that you know, kind of self-pitying mode, you, 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 you turn, you resist that thought and turn to what is true, and you see yourself as you are in Christ. More than a conqueror. You're no one's victim. Uh, you, you're a child of the Almighty. Mighty God, you're destined for glory. Don't let anyone stand on, 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 on your neck. No, you've got the devil. You're standing on the devil's neck. Know who you are. Stand in the truth. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The final thing, and I just close quickly with this, is, is, is this. Be aware, be aware of the warfare. Resist the devil. Turn your mind to the truth. And the fourth thing is, there's a time to rely on community. The antelope that's standing alone is the one that the lion goes after, and so it is in, in the spiritual realm. If you're, do, if, you're doing, if you're going solo, you're in a dangerous position. Uh, we're meant for each other. We're meant for community. That's why we stress small groups so much. Every person who's hearing this message, whether you're in the auditorium or hearing it on TV or hearing it on the radio, uh, you, every person needs to have somebody or some people they can call at 3 in the morning saying, Tell me what is true again because I'm starting to forget. Somebody they can call at three in the morning when they're in the grips of temptation. Somebody that they can la- rely on. And when you fall, there's someone there to pick you up. This is why the Bible calls us the body of Christ. We're, we're meant to be woven together. The finger is useless unless it's attached to a hand. And the hand is useless unless it's attached to an arm. And so for the whole body. Get plugged in. Get people around you. Uh, people who know you, who can hold you accountable. They're involved in your life, and you're involved in their life. 
If, if this is your spiritual body and you don't have someone like that, you're going solo, stop at our community desk and, and talk to them about how to get plugged in to a ministry, to a small group, or something of the sort. We'll, we'll, we'll do all we can to help you in that area. Would you stand? Uh, as I pray, could I ask the prayer team to come forward? And if you're here this morning and you're perhaps in the grips of temptation, or maybe you've already fallen, or you have any other need that you want to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward here, and our prayer team would love to spend some time praying with you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you stop by at the information table, and there'll be a person who'd just love to explain to you what that's about and pray with you or whatever else you need to get started in the Christian walk. Uh, let me close with this benediction. Lord, as we go out of this place, help us to remember who we are. Help us to uh, see the world as the war zone that it is. But Lord, I pray that as we leave this place, there wouldn't be anybody here who's walking in fear because you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And Lord God, greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. So Lord, I pray that you'd make us ferocious warriors of love as we go out of this place to advance your kingdom against the kingdom of darkness. Help us to have a mind and a heart that's listening and attentive to our commanding officer and work in us and work through us to do your will. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Go out and fight the battle.